Welcome. I'm Steve. Hey, Josiah, what's my title? There you go. That's my job. And that's Josiah. Josiah, stand up. There you go. Everybody, everybody clap for Josiah because I don't know why that was just fun. All right, here we go. So we're going to dive in this morning to back into Ephesians. If we're been in a series, uh, in our small group series uh, on the book of Ephesians called The Plan, right there. And the idea is we believe that God has a plan for us. And so one of the things that's really, really important uh, when, when reading scripture in general is, you know, there's always a writer, a person who's writing, and there's always a recipient, someone who's going to do the primary reading or the very first reading. And, and in, the, in the context of that, there's this writer like every other letter that's ever been written in the history of humankind, there's a purpose behind it, right? So like back in the day when I was wooing my wife, I would use my incredible English vocabulary and write these astounding letters, right? And, and, the, and the, the, the short of all those letters was, I just want to make sure you know that I love you, right? You could sum all of them up to, to that one simple thing. i got to make sure I can see all over here, right? There we go. Um, and they sum it up that, man, hey, I love you. And so when I would write her letters, that was it. I, I want you to know that I love you. And so I was wooing her. I probably should write more letters. I get that, right? But, 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 but there was this purpose behind it. And so every letter that's been written to you or every letter you've ever written, like there's this ultimate kind of foundational piece that you want to make sure at the end of the letter that that person, that recipient, has actually read and understood. So you write a letter and you make sure they understand this piece and everything else, right, kind of points back to this main purpose. And so one of the things, unfortunately, when reading scripture a lot of times is that we forget that there's actually a writer, there's actually a recipient, and there's a primary purpose and primary message that the writer's trying to get across, right? And so when we read, it's good to read scriptures, it's good when God speaks to us out of it. But to always remember, there's ultimately a primary message that, that the writer is trying to get across. And so here, obviously, the writer is, is Paul. And he's writing to the church at Ephesus, but also every other church in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Okay, So a big rectangle like this. It's all these churches spread out everywhere. So, so Paul's writing this letter, and he has an intended purpose. And we've already talked about the purpose. We said it was Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. We said that God's plan, verse 10, is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Okay, again, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And so I don't know about y'all, but I read the news. And when I read the news, there are a lot of things that are not under the unity of Christ, right? We would say in so many ways that our world is living in the midst of chaos, like maybe never before. There's chaos that defines the context of our lives. There's context, there's, 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 there's this chaos that defines the way we view things. And there's chaos, maybe, even in your life. Right? In the sense of saying, yes, I would love, like we prayed this morning, I would love to have breakthroughs. Some of you didn't come forward. But if I were to look at you this morning and say, all right, all I have to do is lay hands on your head and pray for you and breakthrough can occur in any area of your life. You're like, are you serious? I'm like, I'm dead serious. I can do it by myself? Absolutely, right? You would want that. All of us have something like that in our lives that we have chaos in and we're longing for breakthrough. 
We want all of these things to come under unity, the lordship and the leadership of Jesus. And so when we come into Ephesians, this is this is his message. The primary thing, I'm going to write all this stuff, but ultimately everything circles around verse 10. That God in his power is working today to take all the chaos and the brokenness, not just of your lives, but the world in which we live, and to bring it under the lordship of Jesus. That's what he's doing, and we can't make him stop doing that, and we can't make him do it more, because he's already doing it. And that should fill us with hope, and that's the idea of Paul, is he's trying to awaken a level of hope and encouragement in them that God is already at work. His plan is to take all the chaos that we live in, all these broken places, and he wants to bring it under the unity of lordship of Jesus. That's what he's striving for. And so then Paul steps into chapter 2, which we looked at last week. I'm going to look at it again. So what I'm going to do is this week, this week, I'm going to do a short little 10 minute thing. And then I'm going to finish off what we're going to look at this week in our small group. So it's kind of like two sermons in one, but don't worry. It's going to be awesome. I promise. Right. You can tell me afterward if I'm right. So now in the context of chapter two, in chapter two, Paul comes in, he says, all right, everything in our unity. And then he comes in verses one through 10 says, let's talk in chapter two about when. You were living a life of chaos. Dun, 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 right? So verses 1 through 4, I'm not going to read the whole thing. You read for yourself for it last week. Basically, verse 1 through 4 says, and you can take notes to kind of make it simple for you. Number one, you were all dead in your sin. That's chapter 2. 1 through 4, you were all dead in your sin. We read all the words as you were dead in your transgressions. You followed the ways of the fallen world. You gratify, this is like so, man, like, whoo, grat, you gratified, satisfied the evil thoughts and desires of your flesh. Man, that sounds overwhelming, doesn't it? You gratify, you satisfy the evil thoughts and desires of your flesh, and you deserved God's wrath. So Paul's just reminding them, listen, what Paul could remind every human being there was a day and a season, man, that you were separated from God. You were dead. You follow the ways of the world. All you did is satisfy and gratify your flesh. And in that moment, you deserve God's wrath. That's all of us. Paul's just reminding them of what he reminds every human being. There was a moment when your life was utterly and completely 100% defined by chaos. Then he comes in, second part, verses, uh, I think it's like, I don't know, it's like, it's like five through seven, where God in his grace loved us anyway in the midst of that and saved us. That's number two. God in his grace loved us anyway and saved us, right? It says these things. Because of his love and mercy, he made us alive. In our transgressions or our sins against God, it says God acted and God saved us. God's grace saved us, right? And grace is a really important Bible word. Like, I would just say this. I think the word grace, unfortunately, for Christians today is the most misunderstood word or most, the the word that we're most disconnected from in our faith. In fact, I would say that unless we live in a 
great knowledge of and confidence in God's grace that we're probably fumbling through our faith walk. And so in its most simplistic, pay attention, in its most simplistic form, in its most simplistic form, grace is God's love, power, blessing poured out into your life that you did not deserve. The most defining word, we, like the definition we always see is it's unmerited favor. But we don't use the word unmerited anymore, right? That's like for really pithy, smart people, right? We just say, man, we didn't earn it. That's like it's God's love that we didn't earn. It's God's grace. It's God's power. We didn't earn. It's God's blessing in your life that you didn't earn. You can't earn it. You can't make it happen. It's just there whether you realize it or not. So God, in your transgressions, God, in your sin, God, in the moment you deserve wrath, he said, oh, I love them. And I've just got to put myself out. God's grace. So God in his grace loved us anyway and saved us, which leads us to the purpose of sharing the memory Verse 8 says in 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? So let's just stop so you can follow this. When God said you couldn't earn it, grace, he saved you through your faith, right? Your belief that he was God, he was Lord, and your submission, right? So by grace, God's free gift, he saved you as you believed and gave your life to him. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not by works, so you couldn't make it happen. You couldn't do enough good things. You couldn't earn salvation, so it is a lie. I say, do you think you're going to heaven? Yeah, I've been good. He's saying, you can't do enough good. You can't earn it. You can't make it happen. It's a free gift that you have to receive. Only God can save you. All right? For, he goes, so that no one can boast, not by works, so no one can boast about how great they are. For we are God's handiworkers, artwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So let's just kind of break this down, and we're going to dive into the primary example that defines the readers in Asia Minor, according to Paul. So number one, he says, you didn't save yourself, God saved you. You didn't save yourself. God saved you. You didn't earn your salvation. It was a gift of grace, right? He says, I'm just going to pour out my love. And if you will simply, a picture to kind of create in this mind, this mindset is like when I give Jesus died, he was resurrected, that those who might believe, right, might believe. So what's belief? Belief is going to be saying, God, I believe you and you're the water spigot. We all see water spigots, right? We go and turn it like this, and what comes out? Water. It's a water spigot, right? So that's the water source. He's the water source. And what do you do? You're a dead hose. Hoses apart from water sources are what? Absolutely worthless, right? You can't do anything with them. That's like you just go, "Ah, it's a a hose, right? But as soon as you take that hose and you attach it to the water source, what happens? Water begins to flow, and all of a sudden the hose has a great purpose. That's what happens. So God says, I'm the great water spigot. And I'm going to give my my water source to you. All you have to do is just believe that water will flow and that I can save you. So take and you connect. And then he literally, once you say, yes, I believe, he takes you and then he turns you on to the nozzle so his water can flow through you. It's called his Holy Spirit. So by grace, you didn't do anything to earn it. He's like, my water spigot's here. You believe. Whoop. You're like, oh, hey, this is awesome, right? And then a water hose has to be a water hose. So you got to let the water flow. 
So by grace, through faith, you've been saved, not by works. You can't make it happen. So here's the point. Ready? This is going to mess you up. If you could not save yourself then in your own works, in your own doing, then what makes you think you can save yourself today in your areas of brokenness that need salvation in your own effort, in your own strength, in your own earning? That's the point. You couldn't save yourself then, then only, and you can't save yourself today. If only God could save you then, then whatever you name every day in which you need salvation, then it requires you going, God, I can't, only you can, and you just go be with him, right? Because the water hose disconnected from the water source just lays there dormant and nothing happens. And so Paul's coming in and making this this message like, listen, do you remember when you couldn't save and earn anything in your own power and your own goodness? Then what makes you think that you can today? Only Jesus brings salvation. Only Jesus can save your spouse. Only Jesus can save your marriage. Only Jesus can save you financially. Only Jesus can save your friendship. Only Jesus can save whatever it is for you. There's your moment of angst and tension and need of breakthrough of. And he loves to do it. His favorite thing is when he kind of says, Jesus, you see that? I can't. I give up. He's like, fantastic. I can move with that. Because of grace. I can't fix my child. I've done everything that I feel like you've called me to do. All right, then. Just push her, he over to me. And wait. It may take some time. We're going to move. So, in that... God, you couldn't save yourself then. You can't save yourself today. It is so funny how we love to strive in our own strength every day to try to make things happen for God. We're so good at working for God. We're so bad working with him and co-laboring with him, aren't we? I mean, the greatest thing is like, let's go dig some ditches, Jesus. I'm going to do one to your 35,000 times a million, right? It's like this, that mentality. God's movement. So God has work for you to do, but not in your own strength. Your doing must be in the power and strength of God's grace. You must lean into, hide in the shadow of, and rely fully on Jesus in everything that you do. So it looks like is this. Every day you say, God, you see the obstacles. I can't get across in my own strength. I need your grace. Help me to lean into you today, to know you, to trust you, and to let your power flow through me. So Paul's naming that, saying, guys, in Ephesians, and Church of Asia Minor. Listen, only God can save you. It's really important. Now let's talk about, and then we're going to dive into the message this morning, right? Because the primary thing is, so let's talk about the primary example of grace being needed in the context of your life here in Asia Minor. Let's talk about an example we all understand. Let's talk about the example, the most powerful example of God's grace in the moment of your life that literally defines every single church in your region, it's the issue of racism between Jew and Gentile. So just as we dive in real quick, right? So Jew, like nobody uses that word Gentile anymore, right? unless they're like holy spiritual people, right? All a Gentile is, listen, it's anybody 
who wasn't Jewish. All right? So it encompasses every single people group in the entire world. So let's just believe, right, that the Native Americans had crossed that land bridge in some place into North America back in the day, right? And so when Paul's writing this, the Native Americans are living in North America. We didn't know they existed. And Jews was like, oh, Gentiles, all right? Because anybody who was not Jewish really kind of living in this region was a Gentile. All right, so we're super clear. There's a small little group of Gentiles, excuse me, of Jews, and then a bunch of Gentiles, okay? And so that's what we're getting at. And so Paul's coming in the moment saying, all right, let's talk about this example of grace being manifested in life. And then we're going to talk about how that applies to us today. I'm going to read a lot right here, so pay attention. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11, going all the way down to verse 18. It says this. Therefore, so because of God's grace, because you can't save yourself, because salvation occurs only through him, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, this is a kind of a Jewish thing, right, by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done the body of humans. So basically the Jews said, this is how we know we're God's people by circumcision, okay? It's kind of a modern day and like a past tense understanding of, of baptism, okay? Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, So he's saying, when you were the uncircumcision, you were the Gentiles, you were separated from Christ, you were excluded from citizenship in in Israel, you were foreigners to the covenant and the promise, you were without hope, and you were without God in the world. That's bad, right? Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus, for he himself, he became our peace, who has made the two opposing groups one. And he destroyed the barrier. He destroyed the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. They say God kind of broke down these walls, right? His purpose, what was he trying to do? Listen, this is important. He was, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And now in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God, to make them right with God through the cross. By which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace who were far away and peace to those who were very near. So he preached peace to the Gentile, peace to the Jew. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. All right. So let's dive into this. We're going to go word by word. I'm just kidding. We're going to kind of break it into, 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 into pieces. All right. So there are three things that we see we're going to talk about. We're going to see the problem which is separation between Jews and Gentiles, the solution that God united them through the work of Jesus and made them one family, and then our work, which is to embrace and submit ourselves to God's will. So verse 11 and 12, the problem. We've already read this. I'm going to read it part again just in verse 12. You were separated from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in, in Israel. You were a foreigner to God's covenant to promise. You didn't have any hope, and you were without God in the world. That's a problem. So let's just kind of do a little history here. The Jews... The Jews, this really small, small, small people group, they were the recipients, right? They received God's covenants, these kind of these commitments of marriage, right? These covenants of promise. They were told that they were God's chosen people. And listen, they were the recipients of every spiritual blessing. They were commanded by God in Genesis chapter 12. They were commanded by God to use these blessings to bless the other nations. They were to be God's agents of salvation for the world. But they didn't. That's the whole point. 
God came and said, hey, I'm going to give you all of myself. But with it comes a great responsibility. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. Like just real quick to kind of put it in terms of America so you understand. America represents 20% of the world's population. But we use 80% of the world's resources. Right? So the idea is that God has obviously richly blessed us, who really are a very small nation in comparison to the rest of the world, but we've taken those resources and we've hoarded them for our own personal gain in which we use 80% of the world's resources, which means that 80% of the world is trying to live off of 20% of the world's resources. And so you see this disparity, and the same disparity happened in the context of Jews and the Gentiles on a very, very spiritual level. They contained and had all of these blessings. And God said to Abram, listen, I'm going to make your people as numerous as the stars. And I'm going to bless you so that you could be a blessing to all nations. So what we find in this moment is a problem, right? They hoarded the blessings. Why? Because they viewed themselves as better than and they excluded the rest of the world. They hoarded these things for themselves because they wanted to become insular in nature and make sure no one got their blessings so they could keep them for themselves and exclude everybody else, right? And so the Jews then hated the Gentiles. And they hated them. Why? Because the Jews didn't live by their law. Excuse me. The Gentiles didn't live by their law. The the Gentiles didn't hold their values. The Gentiles didn't look, act, and sound like them. And so, and they just kind of didn't turn to their God. And so the Jews despised the Gentiles. The Gentiles despised the Jews for one simple reason. Because the Jews didn't like them. Right? No one's going to like somebody who doesn't like them. Right? The Gentiles are like, hey, yeah. And the Jews are like, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing, oh, then we can't have any relationship with you. Right? Because they devalued anyone who did not maintain and hold their values. And so they devalued and they separated, pulled away and hoarded all of God's spiritual blessings. The Jew-Gentile tension is a, it's really the problem of humanity, right? This moment where God gives us gifts or talents or strengths or blessings. There is something about us that takes those gifts and then we elevate their value and then we look down on everyone. Doesn't have these values then we see them as less than. Like, have you ever been around educated people? Like, I thought the hyper-educated. Do they think if they, do you kind of see them thinking themselves being better than you? Like, do you think that hipsters just love living in the country and hanging out with good old country folk? Do you think country folk like hipsters and think that they're weird and strange? Kind of are right. Anyway, so you get this whole dynamic going down, right? That we value those who hold our values. We like those and we connect with those who think, act, and sound like we do. It's the nature of humanity, right? And someone who holds the gifts that we hold and values what we value, we connect with them and say, oh, yes, they're the enlightened folk. The others, not so much. It's the nature of humanity. Think about this. I've been to weddings. I've done a jillion weddings in my day. I've been to certain weddings, right? This is kind of put in the context of value. So I go to one wedding, and this, this family over here values time, right? 
They, they, they value time and getting things done in a very orderly and timely manner. And so, like, they get their six hours early. They make guys get their four hours early. Why? It takes us five minutes, right? I don't get it, right? I guess make sure we don't get drunk and lost. I have no idea why they do that, right? You know what I'm talking about. You've been to one of those weddings. And so, you get a whole dynamic going down. You're like, hours, and then everybody gets there super early to get the best seat, right? And make sure that we're honoring everybody. And then you have the other family. It's like, where are they? Right? It's like, they're supposed to be here four hours ago for pictures. They text and said, hey, we're running late. That was three and a half hours ago. What's going on, right? And all of a sudden, the wedding starts at noon, and the first person on their side of the family shows up at noon. And, and the spouse who's getting married on their side isn't even there yet, right? And this team, what's this group doing? I said team, right? But what's this group doing? They're freaking out. Where are they? Oh, my gosh. It's so dishonoring. Oh, I can't believe these people don't hold our values. This group over here is like, why are you so hung up on time? We're just having a Kairos moment and enjoying the moment because that happens once by God's grace. So, man, we were saying, we're having a great time, 12 o'clock. Man, every, we're going to get married. It's good, right? We're just enjoying family. We're enjoying our time. We're not going to let, we're gonna, enjoying time. We're not going to be bound by it. So we're just enjoying life. And so they devalue people who honor time. And what do you have? Two groups at odds who look down on the other because they don't share values. They cause hostility. Because in the nature of life, we value our values and celebrate as equals those who hold our values while at the same time devaluing those who think differently than us. And this does cause hostility. This is especially true among people groups. We take our unique identity markers, we place greater value on them and use it to define our self-worth and then view anyone who is different as lacking or less than. And this is a problem for Jesus because if it relates to values and the nature of human beings, from the moment of creation, he viewed all of us in the context of equality. Do you know what the, the value characteristic was in Genesis chapter 1 for human beings? We were all created in the image of God. Male, female, and then whatever skin color. And really skin tone. It's just pigments, right? It's skin tone. You have this dynamic going down. Genesis 1, all human beings are created equal, created in God's image. Genesis chapter 12, remember, he so values every other culture that he says, I'm going to bless this small people group to be a blessing to every other people group in the world. Do you know that all of this is super important? Every other people group had other gods they worshipped. They didn't demonize some people group for worshiping some other God. Muslims are not demon possessed and God doesn't like them less. He doesn't. 
He doesn't devalue any people group as being less than or any religious group or socioeconomic group or any skin color group, right? He looks and says, you're all equal. You've been created in my image. Listen to Numbers 12, chapter 1. God had Moses marry a black woman. She was a Cushite. She was an Ethiopian. Do you know? Do you know what Moses' sister Miriam, is it Miriam? Right? You know what she did? She got on to Moses. So you can't enter, you can't have interracial marriage. You can't do this. You know what God did? Gave her leprosy. I'm not going to lie. There's, oh, I can't say that. Just ask me later what I was going to say. I'll tell you in, pri- in private. I'm just kidding. Now, I love in Acts chapter 10, specifically talking about Jew Gentile. God gave Peter a dream. He said, hey, don't, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. Go to a Gentile. You know what Peter did? This is so cool. He gets there, and Peter didn't lead him to Christ, Cornelius. Jesus led Cornelius to Christ. He gets there, and he starts talking, and all of a sudden, the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens. And he goes, whoa, well, I guess if God already saved you and baptized you with the Spirit, I should at least baptize you with water. (laughs) Right? It's the one time in Scripture people are baptized before they're saved. It's crazy. Baptize the Holy Spirit before you're saved. Ah, it's crazy. God did the work. Grace, he did the work. Which leads to the solution, then, for this area of racism, this tension that we face. The solution, racism between Jew and Gentile, could not be fixed by human beings. It required a work of God's grace through the blood of Jesus to create one new humanity. Man couldn't fix it or change it. Only Jesus' intervention could fix it. Reality, only Jesus could fix the racial divide in Paul's time, and ultimately only Jesus. And listen, Jesus' people, moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, right, with the, with the, the, the water of God's Spirit flowing through us, only Jesus and his people can fix the racial divide we are experiencing today. Only Jesus can. And whether you like it or not, Jesus' solution was to say, well, here's the deal. I'm just going to put you in one family, lock you in a room, make you figure it out by my my grace helping. He made us one family and says, put you in and figure it out. We're all one family in Christ. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There is no Greek. There's no Jew. There's no male. There's no female. There's no black and there's no white. In the kingdom, we're just Christians. Your identity, listen, your identity as a Christ follower has changed your identity. And now spiritually, you have a greater connection and identification with others who believe in Christ than you do your quote unquote own people group who look like, sound like, and act like you do. Spiritual is thicker than blood. I am Christian first and I'm educated second. 
Tim Keller told a story about a friend of his who was a professor going to this faculty dinner, and the guy was super excited. and hang a bunch of smart, nerdy people. He was real excited, right? And they are going to drink wine and eat cheese and have a great conversation, right? And most of them, he was like one of the only believers, maybe the only one in this whole group. So he gets in the car, super excited to go. He gets in the car, turns on the radio, and it's one of those pastors, right? One of those hellfire and brimstone preachers. You know what I'm talking about, right? One of those, like this voice and getting all whatever it is, right? And they're having their moment. They're hellfire and brimstone. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he's like, oh, he's like, this guy is he's so uneducated. His theology is so bad. And his grammar, oh, it's so bad. It's an embarrassment. And is this word, like, all of a sudden, he's like, and God said, you know, he's the one who's your brother. And this group is not. And he was convicted in the moment because he says, I feel this connection, but this is my family. And he was wrecked in the moment, right? Because it is Jesus. I am a Christian follower of Christ first. Education second. I am a Christian first. And I am wealthy second. I am a Christian first. And I am white or I am black second. I am Christian first. And I am an American second. Like I, listen, I'm not going to dive into all, it's not political. I just, I love these words from John McCain this week where he said, he says, beware of spurious nationalism, which basically was saying it's going to keep us from focusing so insular that we forget our call to be a blessing to the rest of the world. It was a prophetic statement to say, listen, you've been so blessed. 80% of the world's resources belong to 20%. That's a gift of God. You haven't earned it. You didn't make it happen in your own strength. Remember, you can't. He gave it to you for a reason and a divine purpose. What are you doing with it? We are Christian first. When I'm in India and I meet a very poor Christian woman who I can't even speak her language. I have more of a connection with her than I do my bulldog-loving, bass-fishing phenoms who just live in this region. That's describing me if you don't know. And I didn't mean to call myself a phenom. That was by accident, right? You see what I'm getting at? The great problem is that we don't think spiritually we don't think theologically as human beings, as in theologically means that I view everything through the lens of what God thinks about it. Everything that I hear on talk radio, I put it through the filter of the scripture and the filter of Jesus to see if he says yes and amen. If he doesn't, then I throw it away as lies straight from the pit of hell. Whether I'm hyper-conservative or hyper-liberal, it doesn't really matter which one you listen to, right? Most of the time, they're not right. Are you able to discern or you just believe? And he's coming in saying, man, you were living separated. Jesus, by his blood, took all who were living in racial chaos and by his death removed the wall of hostility. He put us into one family and he unified us forever. Which leads us to our work, which is real simple. It's the nature of Scripture. We give our lives to Jesus, and we must submit ourselves to his will and his leadership and his lordship. 
you have to bow down to him in all of those areas, even if it causes you to lose friends. Even if it causes you to say things different, act different. It's easy to be one of the guys at work and never and just kind of bow down to the jokes people are making about women. Look at Harvey Weinstein, whatever he, I'm going to say his, his name. I mean, he just, people were afraid of him. So they bowed down to him and he just wounded so many women, many, many more. This is say, it's, let's just, I'm going to throw out a, a very wrong number. My wife hates when I do this. Let's just say it's just 10% of the people who've hurt her, that he's hurt. Because people just went with, went with it because they wanted to be able to climb the ladder. Where are you trying to climb the ladder relationally with people? At the job, trying to, you bow down to, to, to them and you lose your morals. You're Christian first and you're everything second. Our work is to submit. It's, it's just important to recognize. This isn't easy. Like you may not know this, but the entire letter to the church in Romans, in Rome, the letter we call Romans, it was written because Jew and Gentile were having a very, 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 very hard time doing church together. Because in Rome, Gentiles came to Christ and the Jews were in charge of the church. And so it had a real Jewish flair. Then in some time after the death of Christ, they kicked out every single Jew from the city of Rome because of the Jesus Christ guy. Kicked them all out, but the Gentiles stayed and kept on doing church. You know what? Their church looked different than the Jewish church. And so when the, when the, when the Jews came back in 30 years later, they can't step back into this Gentile church that looked nothing like they'd ever, nothing like they'd left behind, and there was tension. Do you know they didn't make it? Really, our, maybe the first divide that we, maybe, not, maybe one of the first divides we know, they had a little Gentile expression of church in a Jewish Gentile of Christian church. Just couldn't do it. They struggled. It's hard for us. It's hard to value those who devalue us. And it's hard to value the things that we don't see people valuing that we love, right? And Paul comes in and says, guys, listen, <laughs> of course you can't do it. It requires my grace, right? It's the whole point going back. And he's bringing unity to everything. You remember when you were living in chaos, you were living in this racial chaos. Remember when you just like, ah, you hated one another and you couldn't do it. And then God came in his own strength and he came with the cross of Jesus and he won the victory. And he broke down the wall of hostility between you and him, which was great. And then he broke down the wall of hostility between Jew and every other people group in the rest of the world. Right. And all of a sudden now you're doing church together and you are now one family and you get to figure it out. But you can't figure it out in your own strength. It requires Jesus because only he can bring together and only he can keep you together. You better be with Jesus. And you better be honest. And you better fight for things that are wrong. And you better fight against the chaos. You better submit yourself and plug yourself into the power of Jesus' flow so his Holy Spirit can come through you so you have the power by God's grace to Co-labor with him. Jesus is laboring over all of these things that are important to him. It is imperative that we co-labor. So, the questions we wrestle with, and then we're going to baptism. Is God's grace alive in me? Do I lean into, trust it, seek it, recognize my need for it in every area? I'm still in need of salvation today. 
Like, do you live every day recognizing your need for Jesus and crying out for his movement in every area of you need salvation? Because you couldn't bring yourself salvation to salvation. You can't bring it to yourself today. Are you believing God in the context of even this racial tension or whatever other tension it is we face in America? Number two, have I embraced God's call to family when looking at people who are different from me? Or the message this week in small groups, do I perpetuate a pecking order? creating a silent internal view of status regarding people who look different than me. Do you say things like those people? That's racist. It's opposed to God's will. Do you create unhealthy categories in any form or fashion? With education, with wealth, do you view yourself as an American as being better than? And your primary goal is to protect yourself, not recognizing that was the great sin of the Jews. And to find ourselves in the calling of God to be Christian first, what does it mean for you? This week, you're going to dive into some of those pieces. But I ask that you would take everything this week and bring it before Jesus and submit it to him. Even the things that you grew up with and saying, well, that's just how I grew up. Who cares? You grew up a sinner and God saved you by grace. And now you have to be holy. This is God's call. You know why? Because the, church, the world's looking for a unified church, man. Who in loves one another and loves them. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for baptisms about to happen, Lord, which is the picture of grace, that we were in our chaos, dying, separated from you, and you came and you saved us. And you took us down into death and you raised us to new life in Christ. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for it. We thank you for this testimony of baptism today to speak to the nature of what's true for us. And then, God, as we accept it, then for us to bring the power of God's grace to a world in needs. We're called to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind and then to love our neighbors who are in need of love, who are in need of restoration, who are living in chaos and bring salvation to their life. Lord, we love you. We pray this in your name.